from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Soybean supplies remain scary tight. Soybeans has a very bullish story to tell. USDA's latest WASDE report is out. We'll break down the numbers. Higher feed costs are creating a frenzy for livestock feeders. Well, first of all, your head's spinning. And it also spurred a closed-door meeting among cattle industry leaders this week. Lessons learned from a first-generation farmer. Cattle rustling. I didn't even know that was still a thing. Stories from a shark farmer. And in John's world... Surprising test results. Now for the news, the latest USDA supply and demand report was on the market in producers' minds this week. The report adding more fuel to the bull market, but just for a day, that's as soybean supplies remain tight. USDA pegging current corn supplies at 1.2 billion bushels. That's compared to just over 3 billion last year at this time. And that corn price now expected to be at 570 a bushel. For soybeans, 120 million bushels currently for the carryout. But look what was in the report May of last year. Over 405 million bushels is what USDA had pegged. And check out that price now, which is 1385 a bushel. And while new crop corn is projected higher to be at 1.5 billion, soybeans also higher at 140 million bushels for the new crop. I don't think there's any surprise there. If you take the trend line yield and the prospective planted uh, estimates on on bean plantings, the the crop came in right at trade ex or right at what would have been projected by that. So I don't think there's any surprises there. We just need to figure out what the usage is going to be, and of course what the actual yield, not the projected yield, is going to be. And for wheat, 872 million bushels versus 774 million in new crop. Well, we've been reporting on the dry weather in South America. USDA trimming 7 million metric tons from Brazil's corn crop, but leaving its soybean estimate unchanged. We've seen them have significant stress in that crop over really the last couple months. It's been growing, especially now that we've hit kind of the end of their rainy season down there. Uh, private estimates within Brazil have certainly been showing that they're expecting the corn production to be somewhere in the mid to upper 90s in terms of 90 million metric tons. Of, of corn production. USDA lowered their corn export number 7 million metric tons from, from their April report. And that was about a million, or excuse me, 1 million metric ton uh, below uh, what trade analysts were expecting. And USDA is continuing to step its corn import forecast higher when it comes to China, raising it to 26 million metric tons. That's well above the 15 million metric tons forecasted earlier. And China continuing its buying spree this week. USDA announcing several sales this week. That includes 1.36 million metric tons on Friday, 680,000 metric tons on Thursday, the same amount on Tuesday, and on Monday, trying to kick things off with a sale of over 1 million metric tons. That follows the 1.36 million metric tons the country purchased last week. And just announced this week, a demand boost for North Dakota soybean farmers. Soybean growers in North Dakota will soon have a new place to deliver their crops in North Dakota. ADM formally announcing its plan to build the state's first ever dedicated soybean crushing plant and refinery. The company says the Spiritwood North Dakota-based plant will help the refiner to meet fast-growing demand from food, feed industrial, and biofuel customers, including renewable diesel. The $350 million complex will be able to process 150,000 bushels of soybeans per day and is expected to be completed before the 2023 harvest. We're uh, definitely an export, export state. 
So any any in-state processing will definitely help our, our basis all over the place here. So it's, uh, especially for me, I'm 20 miles away from it. So it's really good for us. ADM also plans to invest about $25 million to expand refining and storage capacity at its Crusham refining facility in Quincy, Illinois. And happening right now, barge traffic is running once again on a portion of the Mississippi River. It follows a significant fracture on a bridge, the bridge that connects Tennessee to Arkansas. The Soy Transportation Coalition saying the fracture was discovered during a routine inspection that happens every two years. The crack was on a beam that is essential to the bridge's structural integrity, and it's a high traffic area. Almost every barge loaded with soybeans, corn, and other ag commodities along the upper Mississippi, Ohio, Illinois, or Missouri rivers are destined to the Gulf of Mexico export facilities near New Orleans, and all of those must pass under this bridge. According to USDA, more than 400 barges moved under that bridge destined to Gulf export facilities at the beginning of May. On Friday, officials announced barge traffic would resume, but traffic on the bridge may be shut down for two months. We still have soybean exports occurring, but at, at this time of the year, it really transitions more to corn. And so, you know, I would say easily of these barges full of, of agricultural products that are being adversely affected, I, I would easily say that 80% plus is, is, being, is uh, transporting corn. So uh, clearly our friends in the corn industry are, are really experiencing some hardship, soybeans as well. And another concern right now, drought conditions. It's estimated about 84% of the West is in drought and focusing on California, you can see drought covering much of the state with areas of exceptional drought expanding in the Southern and Eastern Sierra due to very poor snowpack. Snowpack runoff is forecasted to be below normal and reservoir storage levels at some lakes are 48% to 41% of average. It's so bad, farmers are being forced already to take drastic measures. The owner of Del Bosque Farms in San Joaquin Valley plowing an asparagus field under due to a lack of water. Federal and state water projects say they will provide little to no irrigation water to many agricultural customers. California's governor declaring a state of emergency this week. Well, and if it feels like the cost of living is getting a lot more expensive, it is. That's as inflation fears heat up. According to the Labor Department, U.S. consumer prices have risen more than 4% over the past year. That's the sharpest increase since 2008. They're up nearly 1% over the last month alone. From March to April, food prices rose four-tenths of a percent, the biggest increase since the pandemic-led supply crunch last June. The Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has repeatedly said inflation will prove temporary as supply chains return to normal. Other economists aren't so sure. Well, as we mentioned earlier, California's governor declaring a drought emergency this week. We'll check in with Mike Hoffman next to see if there's any relief on the way. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Hoffman. Mike, as we mentioned earlier, California's governor declaring a drought emergency this week. It's extremely dry in areas. Are there any indicators that this current weather pattern will wane? Well, good morning to you, Tyne. Unfortunately for most areas, no. We are going to see some moisture in eastern Texas that might spread a little farther west and get into some of these drought areas. And we might see a little bit of enough of a pattern change to start seeing a little moisture in the northern plains, but I'm not confident of that quite yet. For this area, I just don't see much uh, chance for uh, many chances for rain. So you're talking about very dry conditions, New Mexico westward to California. So let's go back a month. You can see it's been that way for a while there. 
change over the past month. We've seen it start to dry out north of the uh, I-80 corridor there. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that area eroding as some moisture has come uh, into those areas. We've also seen things relax a little bit, the northern Rockies into the Pacific Northwest with some moisture in those areas. So we'll keep tracking things for you. Unfortunately, uh, Tyne, I don't believe uh, we're going to see much of a relief there, New Mexico back toward California. Uh, hopefully a little relief in some of the other areas. Jet stream. Uh, you can see that uh, it is now a zone of flow. The main jet is now into Canada and that's going to uh, keep the cold air bottled up up there for a change. We warm up big time for the eastern half of the country as we head into the second half of next week. There's going to be places that had a, a frost and within a week they're into a summer like weather pattern and that's going to be the case for the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley, some of those areas. And you can see as we head through next week, we keep that ridge. We have some little troughs trying to come eastward through that, and that's that chance for moisture I'm talking about for the northern plains. Whether we get it or not is going to be uh, the problem, perhaps, but hopefully not. Hopefully we can start to get a little bit, because it's tough to get rid of a drought. Uh, it's already dry, and you don't get any pop-up showers and thunderstorms out of a situation like that. So you actually need moisture to move in. So let's go day by day. On Monday, we're going to have a system coming through the middle of the country, showers and some thunderstorms with that, scattered through the so southern Mississippi Valley. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty warm through uh, the southern half of the country and milder for a change through the northern half. Checking out Wednesday, we have a system uh, coming into the western plains with some showers and thunderstorms, central plains down toward uh, Louisiana, eastern Texas and a system coming in Pacific Northwest. That one is moving through the upper Midwest. So maybe on Thursday you get something in that drought area of North Dakota, South Dakota. Otherwise you can see the areas of showers and thunderstorms. 30 day outlook for temperatures. Going to go below above normal for the Northern Plains through most of the West, above normal for the East Coast. And because of extra moisture, I'm going to below normal for Northeast Texas into Arkansas. And there's that above normal area that stretches all the way to the mid Atlantic. Most of the western third of the country probably below normal. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, another big week in the markets, but did USDA's big reports do anything to change the sentiments of the market? We'll talk to Mike North and Joe Vaklovic next. Well, a lot to talk about with our markets this week. Joining me now, Joe Vaklovic, Mike North. All right, big WASDE report, had big gains, especially in the soybean complex on Wednesday. The market seemed to fall apart on Thursday. Joe, what was at play Thursday that really caused markets to go d double digits down? There are a few factors that I see as, as being negative here. First off, I think the market is starting to realize that corn acreage here in this country is in all likelihood going to be substantially higher than what USDA told us it would be back in March. So traders and analysts are, are adjusting their new crop uh, corn balance sheets to account for a much larger acreage number. Now, what that number is, I don't know. Uh, it's probably not the 91.1 that USDA uh, has in their March intentions. It's probably 93, 94, maybe something above that. Uh, the other thing would be uh, the the crop report in regard to Brazil. You know, the USDA uh, dropped their, their Brazilian corn estimate. The Brazilian government uh, only dropped it by a very small amount. So maybe that was seen as being a little bit bearish as well. Well, I mean, if we are seeing some farmers switch over to more corn acres then because the price told them to do so, I mean, that would seem to be a bullish story then for soybeans, right, Mike? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing you have to build into this equation is that as we came through the report, there was all of this pent up anxiety, excitement, enthusiasm. And whenever you come through the numbers and finally put them behind you, you look around and say, okay, what's next to talk about? There really wasn't anything new. And the charts were already telling us that this thing was maybe a little bit overdone and you know we, we we baked this rally maybe a little bit too long and you know in any market movement you need setbacks like this enabled to in order to uh, ultimately keep them alive and keep them healthy yeah so when you look at this report and you look at, at what we should be watching moving forward i mean are you surprised joe that seven dollar corn has not caused more demand destruction yet I, I guess it's surprising. Um, we have seen some some cancellations of old crop export sales, but they've been replaced uh, by new crop export sales. Ethanol producers in this country can still make money with corn at $7, which is really phenomenal. I think we're probably seeing some demand destruction in, in terms of feed usage, although USDA didn't really tell us that yesterday. I imagine that that's something that you see in the future. But no, I'm, I'm generally impressed by how demand for both corn and soybeans has held together uh, in general, despite these very high prices. And the market acted that way on Thursday, yet we saw another confirmed purchase from China when it comes to corn. Mike, I mean, China has been on a buying spree. So does that mean that our supplies will remain tight even into the new crop? They will. And to Joe's point, a lot of these new sales are focusing on the 21-22 marketing year. So as you talk about demand destruction, I believe it is happening to some degree. We're not buying nearby or they're, they're not buying nearby corn because why would I spend seven and a half? You know, I, I can slide that forward into the new marketing year and pick up $6 corn uh, at a discount. And that's kind of, I think, the thing you're going to see more and more in the export arena is as we get closer and, you know, with some of the inabilities for us to ship, uh, I think future cancellations on old crop uh, ultimately will translate into, you know, shifting sales into, into new crop. Uh, but you can't get away from the fact that the balance sheet is tight right now. And as they delivered the baseline report in May, which, you know, always uses that uh, trend line yield, it'll be a real question, even with bigger acres, whether or not we can maintain 179 and a half uh, bushel yields through summer with as dry as we know it is right now. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, on Thursday. Uh, this week, we, we got some major infrastructure issue news, one of those happening on I-40 with the bridge that that um, bridges Arkansas uh, to Tennessee, and, and barge traffic came to a halt. Do you think that had anything to do with some of the downside in the markets that we saw on Thursday? Well, it's not a positive for the market. Um, I'm not going to say that it's an overwhelmingly bearish factor. I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be short-lived. Uh, logistics issues like that domestically will typically result in basis weakness first. That'll be your first uh, thing typically when you run into some situation like this. Um, so I, I don't know if we're going to see that play out or not, but that would be where you'd see it first. I don't know necessarily that that has a whole lot to do with Thursday's big sell-off, though. All right. Well, extended limits, you know, as we see these price swings both up and down, is that kind of amplifying that? We'll talk to our marketing analysts when we come back. Well, with conservation at the forefront of many conversations, it's also brought renewed attention to runoff. Here's John Phipps. We're adding more drainage soil this year to a field with some serious wet spots. 
I know every time I mention tile drainage there will be criticism due to the linkage between nitrate runoff and tile effluent. I have tried to keep up with the research on whether tile is a big contributor or not, but the efforts to monitor this problem have not received as much attention as I think it should, and each report I read seems to be a little less relevant to our farm. Or so my brain desperately wants me to think. Tile systems like this one have made enormous positive differences in our yield, soil tilt, timeliness, compaction, and even fertilizer use, so I am very aware of the bias deep in my mind that it has on information that seems to implicate tile as a serious problem for nitrate pollution. Oddly, most agree tile reduces phosphate pollution by making soils more absorbent and thus reducing surface runoff. Phosphorus is lost when soil is lost. This matches, matches with our observed uh, results as well. We simply have fewer washes and gullies, even with the increased rainfall the last few years. My idea is this problem needs some empirical data specific to our farm. To that end, I have invested in my own water nitrate test kit. The plan is to regularly sample tile outlets over the next few years and see what I get. I'll probably add extra samples after nitrogen applications, heavy rains, and other un unusual con uh, conditions to see if I can spot a trend. I'm aware this is pretty crude data, and, and I'm, although the accuracy is supposedly on this machine enough to spot nitrate levels that would make my farm part of the problem. And even if the absolute numbers have a wide error band, maybe we can spot seasonal and long-term trends. We've had our wells tested on several occasions, and they vary from 24 to 65 feet deep, and none have ever shown a nitrate level above 4 ppm. The EPA limit is 10. I was confident our 24 inches or so of topsoil and heavy clay below that would prevent most nitrogen leaching. However, my new nitrate photometer and carefully followed instructions just changed this happy narrative. My initial reading was 9.6 milligrams per liter, which is the same as ppm, just below the safety limit for drinking. Stay tuned. To quote the ancient cartoon strip character Pogo misquoting Oliver Hazard Perry, we have met the enemy and he is us. I'll try to post updated graphs and sample information, but this issue suddenly became a little more real for me. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Tractor Tales with Machinery Pete. Well, folks, I tell you what, I've never met a guy that owns two John Deere 8020s until today. Lee Potter of Wilcox, Nebraska. Lee, this is a beautiful machine you have here. Thank you very much. And I'm very proud. Now you have, your restored one is out on the lot. Yes. But they, they put this one right under, in the middle of the, of the show floor for a reason. This is a beautiful original, isn't it? Yes, I, uh, I've looked at this tractor for probably 10 years. A lot of people wonder about these 8020s. Deer came out with them, they're actually, were 8010s when they came out in 60? Yeah, in 60 they made 100 8010s okay. and sold one the first year. And so from that point forward, they would, you know, the year they sold them, that's what year they were okay. through 64. Now, you, were you saying, Lee, you have some original paperwork on this thing? I've got the original bill of sale. I've got the bill of sale from the guy that 
I bought it from. Yep. And he did all right. He had it for 32 years. Yep. He paid $8,750 for it. $8,750. Yeah, they've appreciated slightly, haven't they? Yes, they have. The skyrocketing prices of corn, soybeans, and wheat are having a damaging impact on feed users. And as livestock producers try to manage the rising costs, it's not just feed creating a frenzy. That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, soybean prices hit nearly a nine-year high this week. Corn prices climbing above $7. And as prices shot higher, it's creating pain for those needing to buy that feed. That's this week's Farm Journal report. Planting progress is in the books for some Iowa farmers. The weather was pretty cooperative for us. We got some stuff in early, we got rained out, and then we got back in and hit it hard. Amanda Adams says her family finished planting Mother's Day weekend, a relief for a pork producer who needs all the feed she can get. Obviously, we have grain prices that are going up too, so the margins are, are still different than they would be if grain prices were um, back in the three and fours. It's climbing feed costs, creating a difficult situation for feed users. Well, first of all, your head's spinning. As the markets try to figure out just how high feed costs will go. Basically got to say, okay, if I've been long, okay. If I, I haven't been long at this point, what is my risk? And my risk is the weather scare. A possible weather scare that could produce a scarier outlook for those needing to buy feed. You gotta kind of be uh, in catastrophic mode right now. If we have a weather problem and a weather scare, uh, the upside is, is very scary. We'll far exceed previous all-time highs in corn and beans. Uh, that's a big if, if we have a weather scare. Everything looks pretty good right now. And it's not just corn that's creating price pain for feed buyers. I'm probably more concerned about the beans, so I'd be worried about my meal, too. USDA's WASDE report out this week added fuel to the tight soybean supply story. Soybeans has a very bullish story to tell, um, and, and certainly I think that'll continue to support prices. We've seen this being played out in the markets the last couple weeks. It is tight, and soybeans are now fighting to retain the acres uh, that they can't lose. Uh, they have acres they can't give up, and, and they're even fighting and, and, frankly, losing the battle of even maintaining the acres uh, that they have. So they have work to do, uh, and the market, especially end users, are going to continue to to have to bid premiums to bring this product in. AgriTalk host Chip Flory said the other big takeaway from the report is the fact $7 corn hasn't scared away demand yet. USDA added 100 million bushels to the corn export estimate, took it up to 2.775 billion bushels. That's and, and that's with old crop corn futures above $7. We need to keep in mind that as we look forward into the 2021-22 marketing year, that what 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 has happened in the old crop marketing year tells us that the market needs to work harder to to slow down demand. As certain sectors of demand show no signs of slowing, cattle feeders are faced with a double dose of bad news. One of the big ones right at the moment is that we simply have a very large supply of fed cattle 
uh, and not enough packing capacity to process it all. Oklahoma State Livestock Specialist Daryl Peel says the lack of packing capacity is getting to a critical point. We've been aware for several years that packing capacity had had you know had gotten down to a point uh, where it was you know kind of imbalanced with with cattle numbers and actually uh, now is a little bit short of what we need. Even with Saturday kills, Peel says processing can't keep up with all the market ready cattle. There's just a backlog of fed cattle right now and that's really weighing on these fed cattle markets. The latest sterling profit tracker shows packer margins hit $929 per head, an increase of more than $260 per head in the past week. And during that same period, Feed yard margins were barely in the green at $87 per head. That's as feed costs aren't doing feed yards any favors. What we've got right now is these feeder cattle markets are caught between this sort of stagnant fed cattle market that's uh, that's capped by capacity and, uh, and and these high feed prices. And so that's really weighing on the feeder cattle complex right now. As packers continue to make hefty margins, National Cattlemen's Beef Association says it's an issue that needs to be addressed. Our supply chain looks like a dumbbell at this point with this with this little tube in the middle, right? And you have you have a ton of cattle on one side and you've got incredible consumer demand on the other. You have China that's almost out of food and looking for anything on the hoof that they can find. Um, you know, the, the, the dynamics have never been better for us to capitalize on this as an industry. Um, and, and, you know, we, we still have this this capacity issue um, that that is really holding us back from achieving that, not to mention what it's doing to prices. I mean, obviously for our producers, anytime you know you can take the, the, the margin for a feedlot operator and add a zero to it and get your packer margin, uh, we're, we're not in a good spot as far as that is concerned. And, and a lot of that really does come back to that capacity. The current price imbalance between the packer, the feedlot, and the ranch was at the heart of a closed-door meeting among the cattle industry this week. Six groups, including NCBA and RCAF, met in Phoenix this week. The groups that are typically at odds telling U.S. Farm Report they were on the same page in an agreement about possible changes and solutions, with an announcement expected next week. And as cattle groups start working together, there's another issue plaguing producers, drought. And it's weighing on the minds of ranchers in some of the heaviest cattle producing states. That's going to have an impact on cow-calf operations, cow herds, uh, but it also affects uh, summer demand for feeder cattle, for grazing. A mountain of obstacles for an industry still trying to recover from the pandemic. I think from a livestock perspective, though, uh, what we've seen historically, eventually, if corn and bean prices continue higher from here and go dramatically higher, maybe test or exceed all-time highs, it will drag the, the livestock with it and that to keep those margins uh, kind of in check a little bit. We haven't seen that yet, but if that continues, you're going to see these uh, deferred uh, hog and cattle prices uh, really put a nice rally in to try to keep the margins together. Uh, otherwise, you've got uh, massive, massive losses and you know a huge disruption in the livestock industry. As a year later, the future still remains unclear. Well, we'll talk more about the livestock prices with Joe Vaklovic and Mike North next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Delaro Complete. Keep your operation moving forward with new Delaro Complete fungicide from Bayer. Welcome back to our marketing roundtables, Joe Vaklovic and Mike North. Before we get into to livestock, Mike, we saw these extended limits when it comes to prices. Do you think that is overdoing it either on the upside or the downside like we saw this week? 
Well, the, naturally. So as these extended limits are put in play, you you gain momentum in a market when when uh, things start to happen. You know, we we talked a little bit about the bridge issue on the Mississippi. You know, charts were a little bit overbaked. We're through the USDA report. You know, really the report to me was kind of like you know big fireworks, long fuse, and it took till Thursday before it really lit. And as we came out of the backside of that report, which really didn't give us any surprises, the market has now been taking a breath and these extended limits have allowed us to go further than we would have otherwise. Uh, but again, as you look at the volatility in this market, you know, one down day does not necessitate that this thing is over. Uh, and, you know, the trend of late has been whenever we get a big down day, we follow that with, with upside in the following day. Uh, but we have a trend line laying below this market that may still invite uh, some downside as, as we keep uh, working our way through. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, big limits have allowed for this volatility to be more accentuated for sure. Well, and the volatility is also putting livestock producers on a roller coaster. We just talked about that in our Farm Journal report. Joe, if you are a feed user and you know what a weather scare could possibly do to this market, what should your game plan be? Uh, it's a terrifying proposition because we know that, you know, in the case of the corn market, you've got a, a, a tight-ish balance sheet uh, looking at new crop and and weather is is always the biggest unknown. I mean, weather historically and, and probably still is uh, the biggest driver of price action in the grain markets bar none. So yeah, you've got a ton of upside risk if you're a feed user and and the cattle market itself has, has struggled phenomenally. Um, you've got a massive discrepancy between uh, boxed beef and, and uh, what's going on in the cash cattle market. Um, the, this high corn deal is making things very difficult. It's, it's a really tough spot to be in. I mean, does an end user bite the bullet and, and buy new crop corn at five and a half bucks on the board as, as a means of protection, knowing that if we end up with a big crop, that could be bad to the tune of a dollar or a dollar and a half. These, these sort of big time bull markets are incredibly difficult to navigate, um, especially if, if you're an end user. Yeah, and the milk markets, Mike, without these farmers to families food box programs, without some of these things that we saw really prop up the markets in 2020, I mean, is there hope for higher milk prices in 2021? Absolutely. And as you look at what's going on, we set a record for powder exports in March. We've got strong whey exports still to China. We've got a food service sector that's coming online and demanding product, uh, even as the retail sector has been softening, softening a little bit. And then you have this feed discussion yet. As we go into the summer and work our way into fall, you have to respect the fact that rations are going to change and not be as as full as they have been in the past there's going to be people taking things out of the ration to make them more affordable and that translates into you know fewer pounds of milk uh, perhaps fewer cows uh, in the barn uh, that are milking and all of that basically shows a smaller supply laid against this backdrop of, of still what i'll call strong demand so you're still at this point talking about phenomenal milk prices looking out through 2021 and even now into 2022 we've got $20 class 3 uh, milk prices in nearby contracts uh, mid to upper 19s as we go further out beyond that and still showing $18 prices on class 3 through the first half of 2022 so milk prices uh, are definitely showing uh, improvement and feed is certainly a part of that conversation. Well, cattle prices, Joe, last week it felt like we had turned a corner and then Thursday of this week uh, prices were not pretty. You know, do you think we have indeed turned a corner on these cattle markets? 
No, I don't. It, it, I feel like we should have at this point, and, and I mentioned the boxed beef situation, the feeder cattle market's acting incredibly poor um, given the, the sell-off in the corn market. You would think, all right, you get you get a 40, 50 cent down move in corn or more than that, and, and you would see some upward movement in the feeder cattle. And on Thursday, uh, we just didn't really see that translation. It's uh, it's really been an incredibly tough deal. Uh, it's It still feels like an uphill battle to me. Yeah. All right, Joe, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com slash ACAM. Well, this week on AgWeb, there is a crazy story about cattle wrestling in Texas and that scheme. But cattle wrestling is nothing new when it's part of a stories from a shark farmer this month with shark farmer Rob Sharkey. We all like to talk about how great it is to see young people in ag. And I will say this past year, I've interviewed a bunch of first generation farmers. For the most part, farm kids are born into it. They grow up their whole lives learning the ag industry. A lot of times what happens is they come back and they're in a hired hand role for a while. But hopefully there comes a point where the kid starts doing their own thing. Like they get a chance to rent the 40 down the road or they hit up a neighbor to say, hey, that empty hog building, can I put hogs in there and start up on my own? I know you're working for your family, but when you start out on your own, there's no better pride. It's an amazing feeling, but it doesn't guarantee success. Recently on the Shark Farmer podcast, I interviewed Tanner Malang. He's a 28-year-old farmer from North Dakota, and he, he fit all those stereotypes. And then he got to the point where he wanted to put skin in the game. My father is almost 60 years old, and he decided he'd like to back off, and I wanted to grow. So it was actually the first year that I had kind of taken over the family cattle operation. You know, my dad was still helping with the farming side and helping me hay. But as far as, you know, the, the management and the, the money and all that, he had transferred all that over to me. So this is your first go at it. My first big break. An incredible feeling. And to hear him talk about it was phenomenal. But what happened next? It's just downright heartbreaking. Cattle rustling. Has your dad ever had anything like this? Nothing to this extent. I can remember when I was little, we have a stock pond in our feedlot. One spring, we had a bunch of heifers get out onto the ice, and they fell in the ice. And I think there was you know, 12 or 13 of them that went through and died. But nothing ever to this extent. Cattle rustling. I didn't even know that was still a thing. I mean, I know they, they got it on Yellowstone. But I mean, that was also the show that showed us the worst reincarnation of pulling a calf in the history of television. But cattle wrestling, he lost 85 head, 85 head. And because of a multitude of mistakes that really weren't Tanner's fault, he wasn't covered by insurance, none of it. That's a pretty rough start for a farmer, but he was positive. I couldn't believe how positive he was. Yes, he's he definitely struggling through some lows on all of this. But overall, he's positive about agriculture. 
he credits that to farm talk. So what's farm talk? It's farmers on TikTok. What's TikTok? TikTok, I, I think it's kind of like Twitter, but they use music to make up for the lack of original content. I don't know, it's weird. It's weird, but it doesn't matter because it helped Tanner out. They even set up a GoFundMe. It got him through all this with a positive attitude. And that's pretty cool. As bad as it is, I am glad that Tanner went out and started on his own. Because there's no better way to learn how to farm, to learn how to build a farm, to improve a farm, to build a farm that you can pass off to the next generation than if you do it yourself. Wow. Thanks, Rob. And you can hear more from Rob at sharkfarmer.com. There you can also subscribe to his podcast. Well, up next, John Phipps. Vaccination objections. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Well, John Phipps' recent commentary drew quite the response. He joins us now from the farm. I get mail like this one from Don Linden in Adrian, Michigan. I really can't stand watching you on U.S. Farm Report show, so I DVR the show. That way I can fast forward through your part. I do this so I don't have to hear your lame brain thoughts or your moronic conclusions, like your recent one on taking the COVID shot. I just happened to get up and get a refill on coffee when you came on. Figured fill the cup, sit back down, and fast forward through you again. That was until you started your little preaching epitaph on shot getting. This is why I don't get the shot, you brainless moron. I actually think I got it last year, and that means by all scientific calculations by the CDC, I have the T and B cells to fight the disease naturally. If I didn't, I wouldn't mind getting it, so it would build, up, or build my immunity up to fight it going forward, since I have a 99.7% chance of surviving it. We now realize that it is the most vulnerable amongst us that are susceptible in having severe reactions to this disease. These people, I realize, really need the shot to keep from being compromised by the CCP virus or I bet you're of origins of where the virus came from denier too. I don't get the flu shot every year because I want my immune system to get stronger to be able to fight these viruses and diseases naturally. And in most cases, I can and do. And guess what? I never get the flu. Amazing, right? I know, just a concept you fail to grasp. With all the diseases and viruses that are being transmitted every day around the world, I refuse to live in fear of one that I have an, uh, 100, almost have a 100% chance of surviving from. Weird concept, I know. I'll wear a mask if the store requires it, but the first chance it's off. I think mask wearing is just an attempt to take more of our freedoms away from us. Seems mask wearing sure doesn't seem to be 100% foolproof. Maybe you should read the article that just came out by two MIT professors that state you have as much of a chance at getting it at 6 or at 60 feet. If you ever come across a guy in Michigan that is, isn't wearing a mask, please stay clear, because I'm really afraid of catching your disease of stupid. 
Don, please send an address. Thank you for the feedback. It helps me estimate how, when, and if recovery from the pandemic can come about. Well, as always, if you have a question or a comment for John, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, when we come back, technology that could save lives from the farmers next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bayer Plus Rewards, helping make every part of your season more rewarding. Visit mybayerplus.com to learn more. It's time to register for Farm Journal Field Days, Hay, Forage, and Cattle Edition, an interactive online event, June 8th and 9th. Go to FarmJournalFieldDays.com. Farm Journal Field Days, the new American farm show. Well, possibly coming to a farm and grain bin near you, a robot, and it could help save lives. You're looking at the grain weevil in action. It's a mobile robot that scurries across the top of grain inside a storage bin. It helps aerate, move, and manage grain using an auger driver system. The creators of the robot were recently awarded a student prize by MIT. They say they're using the money to help further develop and test the grain weevil. Wow. Talk about technology that could save lives. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.